0: I invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles with me this morning to John chapter 2, uh, verse 1 through 12. John chapter 2, uh, verse 1 through 12. Now, now John 2, I'm still not hearing a whole lot of pages turn. We talked about this last week. We've got to bring our Bibles, okay? Uh, John chapter 2 begins a new section uh, in John. It's it's really the start of his public Teaching, his public ministry. He's gathered a few disciples, and so now they're starting to travel and they're starting to go out. It also begins uh, a section in John, uh, sometimes called the Book of Signs. Uh, Really, John chapter 2 through chapter 12, we see Jesus perform many signs. And John's pretty intentional in calling them signs. Rather than calling them miracles, he calls them signs. And I think he does this because he wants us to see who Jesus is and to follow Jesus rather than just follow the miracle and and see the miracle as the end, right? Jesus is the means to the miracle. Rather, he wants us to see that Jesus is the end, that the miracle is the thing that reveals, that points to, that shows us who Jesus is so that we pursue Jesus and not the miracle. John wants us to know the miracle is the means to Jesus. It's a sign that confirms who he is, it's a sign that signifies the uniqueness of Jesus, a sign that distinguishes him from others, a sign that reveals to us that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And So the point of the miracle, the point of the sign is to reveal the glory of Jesus so that people might believe in him. And so with that in mind, I invite us to hear John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom, And he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you've kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they remained there a few days the word of god for us the people of god let us pray god we have heard your word we pray that it might continue to speak to us That we would hear and know and recognize your voice not mine pray that my words might honor and glorify you in christ's name amen So just a few days, right after some disciples had started following Jesus, they all get an invitation to attend a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And it's helpful to know a few things about Jewish weddings. They're a little bit different than what our weddings and our feasts might be. Uh, A Jewish wedding feast uh, was kind of like an extended family reunion. Uh, Over the course of seven days, uh, friends and family would gather for feasting, for dancing, for celebration. I mean, it was a week-long party celebrating this couple. And so just if you can imagine for a moment what that would be like, or or perhaps if you're the the host of this wedding banquet, what the cost might would be like to feed people for that long. I think the guest list at my wedding would have been a lot shorter (laughs) if this was the case. Uh, But being a host for a wedding was an important thing. To host well brought honor to the family, To provide a great banquet was a good sign for the future of the wedding couple. On the other side of things, for the wedding banquet to fail or to fall short, it would be a cause of great shame for the entire family. So there's a a lot that's riding on these wedding feasts. And so Jesus and his friends, they're at a wedding, as well as Jesus' mother, and the wine runs out. It's a big problem. So Mary comes to Jesus with this problem. She knows who he is. She knows what he can do. She trusts him, so she brings the problem to him. And Jesus gives what feels like a somewhat short and direct response to her. Right, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And so a couple of parts to this. First, and as Jesus references his hour, he's talking about the appointed time of this mission that God has called him to. He'll reference his hour about another 12 times through the Gospel of John, which talks about his, his completing the work that God gave him. It, it talks about his hour is his time on the cross whenever the, the salvation for all is one through his blood that's been shed. And so he's saying, my, my time hasn't yet come for me to be revealed, for people to see and know who I am as the Savior and as the Messiah. Uh, The time and place for the fulfillment of my ministry is not now, is what Jesus is saying. And then the other part that might seem odd is Jesus calls his mother woman, which I I know I could never have gotten away with that. (laughs) I mean, you you probably have to be Jesus to be able to do that. But um, I think it actually sounds a lot harsher in our modern English than what it was in Jesus's time, and Jesus actually uses the word woman several times throughout John's gospel uh, to to speak in a way, uh, not disrespectfully, but to speak to other women throughout the scriptures. And as Jesus uses it, it's never used disrespectfully. Instead, as Jesus is speaking to Mary, it's, it's probably more about distance than about disrespect. As he's starting his public ministry, he's now fully about the mission of, of the Father. What he's doing is not going to be dictated by family, by friends, or by the will of people, but it's based on his mission from the Father. Everything, even family, becomes subordinate to the mission that he is on, to Jesus's mission, the mission that God has given him. And so he's, he's kind of distancing himself. He's saying, I'm not going to do this just because, but if it's the Father's will. And later on in John, we'll see Jesus says, I I do what I see the Father do. I say what the Father says. He's connected with God's mission, with God's will, and that takes the priority over everything else in his life. Well, Mary uh, responds to Jesus with this kind of passive-aggressive, you know, good motherly uh, trust in, in her son. She responds with a word of faith. She tells the servants to just do whatever he tells you to do. She trusts that Jesus is going to resolve whatever needs to be resolved. And so Jesus sees six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, tells the servants to fill them up. It says there's about, uh, they hold about 20 to 30 gallons each. So about 180 gallons total. Uh, They don't have a water hose or, you know, a tap to fill it up. So it probably took a while, probably took a while for them to fill up all of these jars And once they filled them up, Jesus has them draw some and take it to the person who's in charge of the banquet. And when he tastes it, he's amazed. Though he didn't know where it came from, he said it was the best wine. In fact, he says, the wine that you served first was inferior to this new wine. Not knowing that it came from Jesus, but he's saying this wine that's come from Jesus is better than that old wine. This new wine, is there's something better about it. And then the story ends with a narrative note from John that Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. It revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this sign that Jesus does reveals his glory. It shows his nature. His disciples believed. It's kind of interesting that a huge wedding feast like this, the only people who really see this miracle, who see this sign, who know what's taking place, are his disciples and the servants who are scooping up the water. Right? None of the rest of the people know that it's Jesus who did this. Now, I think perhaps, you know, Jesus, at this point, he's not trying to make a big scene. You know, maybe. He doesn't want to be on everybody's wedding invite list for the foreseeable future. You know, hey, why don't you come turn my water into wine too? Uh, But I think it's more likely that this sign is something that's to build faith in these disciples. He started this journey with them. He wants them to be able to trust and follow him. It's to build their faith in who he is. And there's also some key insights into his life and mission that he's revealing in and through this sign. And so there's a few things for us as we are learning to follow Jesus, that we can learn from this story, from the first of his signs. From a practical side, a practical side of things, we see that Jesus stepped into a wedding of good friends and fixed a problem. They were out of wine. It could have been a socially tragic kind of crisis. But I think what it reveals about Jesus' character is that Jesus cares about even the commonplace parts of our lives. He cares about the day to day. It's not just the big things that we can go to Jesus with, but it's every single part of our lives. Sometimes uh, I think we, we like to think, well, it's like, well, I've got this piece under control and I've got this part under control. That part seems crazy. So I'm going to turn this part of my life over to Jesus. I'm going to invite Jesus to come in and do a work in this part of my life. And Jesus is saying, you know, I'm, I'm good for all of it. I'm with you through all of the parts of your life. In 1 Peter 5, 7, it says, cast all of your cares on Christ because he cares for you. Not just some, not just the big things, but all things. Jesus wants to be involved in each and every part of your life in the day-to-day and the nitty-gritty and each and everything. He wants to be there for you, with you, to lead you, to direct you, to guide you, to be your peace, to so truly let him have his place. You know, when I was visiting my dad last, last September, there was something that just kind of caught me as a little bit different. And that said every time we would get in the car to go somewhere, as he's buckling up, my dad would pray, you know, Jesus, be with me as we go uh, wherever we're going. You know, uh, be with me, be our, be our protection and be our guide. Uh, show me, you know, if there's somewhere I need to go. You know, bring people who you need me to to speak to or to talk to. There was an invitation for for Jesus to be present and to be a part of even the most simplest things like driving from point A to point B. It's these small places that Jesus wants to be a part of our lives in as well where we can invite God to be in and where we allow him even to give direction to our lives so we might listen and hear and know his voice so we might follow as he guides and as he leads. Another practical application from our story might be to see the way that Jesus provides an abundance when there's a need that's brought to his attention six sewn jars 30 gallons each i don't know how much wine you all drink but 180 gallons seems like a whole lot of wine right jesus doesn't just provide enough he provides an abundance you know, when we hear the story of the feeding of 5,000, there's 12 baskets left over. There's not just enough. It's abundantly providing whatever it is that we need, whatever we have need of. In Ephesians 3.20, it says that Jesus is able to do immeasurably more than what we can ask or imagine. It's an invitation for us to trust him like Mary did, that that he can provide when we trust in him. And now, I don't, necessarily like to, uh, to, to, to talk about our, our generosity in, in terms like we give, that God gives back. I, I think there's a strand of, of Christian teaching, uh, the prosperity gospel. Oftentimes it's, it's called where, where there's this kind of transactional relationship that's set up with God, where it's, if I give this, then God's going to give back more, And I don't think that God necessarily works that way. I don't think God is transactional in the sense that what I do somehow dictates what God does. If I do A, then God's going to do B. I think God is above that. I think God has a will to act and to do as he chooses at the same time. I know there's been times in my life whenever there's been hard places where God has provided, where I've had to trust in him and he's opened up opportunities, opened up doors and he's made a way where he's used other people even at times to be a part of that blessing, a part of just making it through the week or the month. I know now there's times when I feel as though God is saying, hey, I want you to, I want you to go ahead and give in, in support of that mission. I want you to give in support of that ministry. I want you to, to give uh, an encouragement to this other person. And, and I might wonder, well, God, if I do that, if I, if I step out and I do that, Uh, then I'm not sure how the rest of these things are going to take place. But every time I follow as God is leading me to be generous, I find that God provides, that God provides more than what I need. Uh, There's a note in this story that we have to pay attention to that God is willing to provide more than what we need if we trust in him. God works through people. God works in all kinds of ways, but he will meet our needs according to his riches and his glory in Christ Jesus. So it's about trusting that, that still small voice when he invites you to join in his work, to trust that he is able to do immeasurably more. And we've seen some practical implications, but this story is so rich. Uh, One of the great biblical commentators, Warren Wiersma, noted that uh, a lot of times when Jesus would perform a miracle, that there would be uh, a teaching, uh, a sermon, so that would follow after that. Uh, in this scene, in this story, there's not really this great teaching that takes place. I mean, if you read through the Gospel of John, you'll see there's a sign and then Jesus teaching, a sign and then Jesus teaching. Here in this story, it doesn't take place. And so as he's looking and reflecting on this, he kind of asks, he's like, I wonder what Jesus's sermon might would have been like had he preached at this wedding feast. Uh, Perhaps Jesus would have made note of scriptural references of how wine is symbolic of joy and he might have made note of how, you know, when we depend upon the world as a place to find our joy that it runs out and it cannot be regained, but the joy that he gives is ever new and ever satisfying, right? At the at the wedding banquet, the wine has run out, and the custom was to offer the best first, and then it's all downhill from there. Uh, then they start serving like the Boone's Farms or whatever, but maybe that's too much of my history, I don't know, but but this this time it's it's run out, right? The world offers, you know, the best at first, the most alluring things to, to suck us in, to draw us in, to try to catch our attention. And when you chase after those things, you might think that it's gonna give you joy, but eventually it runs out and it leaves you feeling empty. You go to this place, you go to this relationship, you go to this substance, you go to this thing to find peace or to find joy, and initially it's all great, and then time after time after time, you still find yourself in that place of feeling empty. When we try to fill our lives with things other than Jesus, to find our peace in places other than Jesus, to look for joy in places other than Jesus, we eventually find ourselves empty. I know there's a few here this morning that are, bouncing around from thing to thing to thing, from relationship to relationship to relationship, from place to place to place, just searching and looking and it's not working out. Jesus is saying, you know, come all the way in. You're here because you're, you're trying me out, but step all the way in. All right, come on in, the water is fine. All right? Come and do more than just taste and see that I'm good. Come on in and drink deep from the wells that I will fill you to overflowing with my peace and my joy because the joy that jesus offers to us is an eternal joy the peace that he has for us passes all understanding he gives us a strength that enables us to endure all things a foundation that can weather any storm he doesn't stop it from raining but he enables us to learn how to sing in the rain and jesus doesn't stop the the lemons from coming our way. But he's there with us to make some of the sweetest lemonade that we might ever find. If you're struggling to find joy, turn off the TV. Turn off the social media. Stop worrying about all of these things. And turn your eyes to Jesus. Spend a little bit of time with him. Fill your life with the good stuff. And watch the good stuff begin to flow out. So the story teaches us that Jesus cares about the little things, that he's able to meet our needs and provide an abundance that when we fill ourselves with him, he gives us joy, but it also helps us to see and know a little bit about this new work that Jesus was doing in the world, the, the new work that Jesus wants to do within each of us. See, when John is telling us about Jesus turning the water into wine, Jesus could have used anything he wanted to hold that water. Jesus could have said, "Hey, go fill up those five-gallon buckets over there." Right? Jesus could have said, "Hey, there's some empty wine bottles laying around. Go fill those up with water." Right? But instead, he chose six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. Right? These jars held water that was meant to cleanse and to purify the outside it was a part of the religious tradition of the people to make sure that they were presenting themselves clean to each other and clean before God and so Jesus taking and using these jars turning this water into wine is a way for him to say that that he is the new way that these old ways are not the way anymore that he is the new way that he is the one who truly purifies who cleanses And that he does so not by worrying about the outside, but by cleansing us from the inside out. Jesus is showing us that he is the one who has come to save, that he is the one who has come to rescue and redeem. And still there's one more point that we should make as we think about these six stone jars and the way that Jesus uses them. I mean, these jars were a standard part of the rituals and traditions of the Jewish people. This ritual cleansing was, was part of their religious work. It was a part of their practices, their habits that they engaged in on a regular basis. Uh, it, it ends up really being a part of Jesus' critique uh, of the whole Jewish enterprise, of the system they had, had set up. In Matthew 23, he, he calls out the scribes and Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you were like whitewashed tombs which on the outside look beautiful, You've taken all this time to to clean up the outside. You've washed your hands. You've, You've bathed. You've done all of these outward traditions. But on the inside, you are full of bones of the dead and all kinds of uncleanness. Jesus using these jars carries the same kind of connotation. As Jesus fills these jars with new wine, he's upending the religious rituals of his day and he's saying that if there is no connection with God and what's taking place then it's useless if it's just the habit if it's just for show if it's just to try to clean up the outside and put on a happy face then it's pointless if there's no direct connection with God then all of these forms of religion are for nothing The Cana story says that God has arrived and that Christ desires an intimacy with us that will not be blocked by forms of religion that no longer bring life. That Jesus has come to change what we do religiously from habit because what he's interested in is not just a bunch of churchgoers who show up on Sunday morning. What he wants is people who are going to truly follow him, who are going to walk with him, who are going to allow him to enter in to the everyday nitty-gritty parts of life, who are going to trust Him fully, who are going to live radically sold-out lives that are completely lived for Him and for His glory. Well, perhaps you've heard or seen somewhere, uh, you know, this statement, you know, Jesus is not about religion. He's about relationship. In, in some ways, this can be a true thing. Right? We can become so consumed in things that are not necessary that we miss the heart of what we should be doing. We become so attached to the ritual that we miss the reason behind the ritual. We create rituals and customs that have something to do with religious habits, but they have little to do with God. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, as he was kind of entering the last few parts of his life and he was, looking back at how God had brought about this renewal work uh, through the Methodist movement, and he was looking forward uh, to what might come. He, he had this to say. He said, I'm not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist either in Europe or America, but I am afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power. He was so concerned that we would get caught up in the religion, that we miss the relationship, that we miss out on Jesus, that we end up existing just for the sake of existing, that our programs take place so that we can have programs, but that our lives are not actually transformed more and more into the image of the creator. And it's not that religious habits are bad, but it's that I have to examine my heart what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and what is it that I'm truly seeking and trying to fill myself with as I'm engaged in this habit. I mean, I can go to church because it's the right thing to do, or I can go to church expecting to meet with Jesus. I can go to church knowing that this is the place where I'm with my brothers and sisters in Christ and that God is preparing us to do something And I'm going so that I can be more in tune with his voice. So I can be more in tune with him. So I'll know what it is that he's inviting me to do in the world around me. I can read my Bible in my upper room because it's a good thing to do. I could check the box on my reading plan. I can spend my five minutes of reading it. Or I can see this opportunity to read God's word. God's living word as a way of encountering him, as a way of meeting with Jesus. You know, God has spoken, spoken through his word, and he continues to speak to us through his word. He's inviting us to encounter and to know him through his word. And so when I read the Bible, I can check the box, or I can see this as an opportunity, as a place where I can meet, encounter, and know him and pursue him more fully. I can serve and I can do for others because it's what good people do, or I could see the opportunity in my service as a way of encountering Jesus. Not just doing it because I feel like I can do it well, because I'm doing good, but this is a moment, this is an opportunity that Christ has invited me in to to be a part of his work and to see and know him through it, to draw closer to him in the midst of it. If we are to be who God has called us to be, who this community needs us to be, it means that we have to get serious about renewal through our connection with Jesus. We have to be intentional about being intimate with Jesus, about spending time truly seeking after him, his will, and his way. We have to leave the ritual purification jars behind and fill ourselves with the new wine that Jesus provides. Jesus is doing a new thing. He's pouring out new wine and he's inviting each of us to not only taste and see that it's good, but to leave everything else behind and to follow him. Let us pray. Gracious and almighty God, we give you thanks for what Jesus has done for us. We thank you that he truly cares about our needs, that he is able to provide an abundance immeasurably more than we could hope or imagine. Lord, we thank you most of all that Jesus came to save us, to enable us to enter into a relationship, a connection with you, in which we can know your peace and your joy, where we have hope of the promise of life everlasting. We thank you that Jesus invites us into an ongoing relationship with him, And I pray that we might be be open to, to knowing your voice and to listening for you. I pray that your Holy Spirit truly would fill us with your new wine. Fill us to overflowing with your joy and peace. Fill us so that we might go out into the world around us and share that same hope and healing that we found in Christ with those whom we meet. Help us to seek first Christ and his kingdom. Above all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.